Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. This episode is brought to you by Element Electrolytes. This month, we are switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP Element partners, including CarnivoreCast listeners. You can now receive a free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link at drinkelementtcom slash CarnivoreCast. I'll provide it in the show notes as well. The Element sample pack includes one packet of every flavor. This is the perfect offer for anyone who's interested in trying all the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash carnworkcast to get this special offer and claim the deal. Element electrolytes are convenient, evidence-based, and delicious. They're used by Navy SEAL teams, Olympic weightlifters, jujitsu athletes, and everyday people who want to make themselves better like you and me. In her book, Defending Beef, Nicolette Hahn Nyman, an environmental lawyer turned rancher, does exactly as the title suggests by proclaiming everything that can be great about beef if it's managed properly. Her book discusses sustainability as well as the nutritional benefits of beef and the positive impacts of biodiversity, managed grazing techniques, and animal health. Nicolette has gone from being a vegetarian of 33 years to becoming a cattle rancher for Nyman Ranch with her husband which you've probably seen in your grocery store for their delicious bacon and other meats. And she's an advocate for the role of livestock in sustainable farming systems. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate being invited. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for joining. Uh, I, I can fondly remember um, diving through your book a few years back and, and really enjoying uh, both the narrative as well as uh, the way you constructed it and a lot of the, um, I won't even say arguments, but like points you presented. Yeah. Thank you. It, it's a challenge because I'm trying to present a lot of factual information, but make it readable and engaging. So that was yeah. what I, that was my whole goal. And every time I hear someone say they enjoyed reading it, I, it makes me really happy. Yeah, I really did. I really did. My, my wife did as well. Um, so I'd love to hear like just going way back, how did you become a vegetarian and an environmental lawyer? Yeah, well, I was, um, I'm from uh, Southwestern Michigan originally from Kalamazoo and um, we lived near a kind of a large open area that, you know, was undeveloped. And so my siblings and I and my father in particular, my mother as well, but especially my dad, we used to spend a lot of time walking and sort of just you know playing in that area. Um, and so I spent a lot of my and we also had a big yard, you know, it was a suburb. Um, we sp- I spent a lot of my childhood outdoors. And I think when I sort of trace back my whole pathway, I think it all started there. <laughs> and my mother was a, um, a, a cook, a baker, a gardener. And both of my parents took us um, when we were growing up a lot of times to to farms to buy our vegetables and our eggs and to um, pick fruit ourselves. They were um, really interested in us eating healthy food. And so um, with four kids, uh, buying a lot of fruit was expensive. And so we just went and picked it ourselves and we did that every summer. So I had this kind of, you know, background from, from the very beginning of, you know, sort of thinking about what I was eating and paying attention to that and also being really interested in the natural world and sort of, <clears throat> 
kind of viewing things from the lens of, excuse me, a little frog in my throat here, um, from the lens of, um, you know, trying to understand the natural world and look at our place in it. And so I think everything kind of goes back to that. Um, So I majored in biology in college. And um, after college, I went to law school and um, always kind of in the back of my mind, I was trying to figure out how was I going to, you know, pull all my interests together because I'd always been really interested in animals and the natural world and you know the environment I was involved in environmental groups already as a kid and throughout college <clears throat> and I went to law school became a prosecuting attorney because that was a super interesting thing for me just to get experience in the in the courtroom and I ended up working for a law firm back in my hometown. I had lived for North, in North Carolina for a while. I had um, uh, lived for a year in France before law school, et cetera. I'd been in a few different places, but I came back to my hometown and was working for a law firm. And while I was there, I saw a speech by Bobby Kennedy Jr. And that he was an environmental lawyer who was using his career and his work as a lawyer to advance environmental issues. And it just kind of clicked in my mind that that was what I should be doing as well. And at this time, I was working in a law firm and also on the city council for the Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo, for the city of Kalamazoo. And so I was very involved in local issues and I served out my term. And um, as I was winding that down, my second term there, I, um, let the law firm know I would be leaving. And I began applying and, uh, you know, thought about what I'd be doing in the future. I I started applying for environmental law jobs and I ended up working for National Wildlife Federation. And from there, I ended up getting a job with the Waterkeeper, which is the group that um, Bobby Kennedy heads up because I happened to have another opportunity to see him speak. And at that point, um, he offered me a job just, or began the process of offering me a job, I should say, said I should apply for a job that he had open. And um, so I moved to New York started working for this environmental group and was asked by Bobby Kennedy Jr. to begin focusing on the pollution from the livestock industry, which is something I didn't know a lot about, but I had been a vegetarian since freshman year in college. I became a vegetarian mostly because I thought it was a better choice as an environmentalist. And I encountered a lot of information in a lot of different places telling me that. Um, I remember, you know, seeing a pamphlet from Sierra Club basically saying, you know, if you care about the rainforest, you should never eat another hamburger again. You know, that kind of thing. And that that had influenced me at that time. I still had those ideas in my head now, you know, 10 years later. And so when I started working on these issues as an environmental lawyer for Waterkeeper, um, it was just kind of reinforcing my vegetarian views, right? That like, oh yeah, I know, I know meat is basically bad for the environment, also bad for our health. And so this is good. I'm sort of working against meat industry, but it didn't take me long to start realizing that it was a lot more complex than that because I was um, beginning to visit farms and tour places around the country. And I was seeing a very different picture depending on the type of farm that it was. So, you know, we can talk some more about that, but basically that's kind of a nutshell to how I started working on these issues. And then as I worked for Waterkeeper for two years, entirely on the question of livestock production, I met Bill Nyman, the founder of the Nyman Ranch Meat Company, and we ended up getting married and I moved to California. And then that led to the, you know, very different chapter that followed, which is um, my 
own life and work on a ranch, which is where I've been for the last 19 years. Yeah, that's amazing. And I have to commend you because I, I know how strong it can be to like be in that echo chamber. And even though you say the evidence was convincing, um, it probably took a lot of cognitive dissonance um, because it'd be easy to just have your confirmation bias filter on and any information you saw that like went against the narrative you had heard and you were sort of living to an extent. Um, Well, yes and no. I mean, I totally agree with you. That is how so much is happening right now with information. But for myself, I had this training as a biologist So I was very interested in, you know, trying to use the scientific approach of looking at facts and reaching conclusions. And then I had the legal training at both the law school, but also by this point, you know, seven years of law practice of, again, trying to really gather the facts and evaluate them. And so I think that was really helpful for me. And also my parents are both college professors. And so they always taught me to try to continually learn and question and don't just accept what other people are saying, because that's something that, um, you know, is often going to lead you down the wrong path. Yeah, that's incredibly valuable. Um, I think more people could benefit from that. Um, and how, um, I guess, how how do you, how would you explain how beef and, uh, and or other animals um, have positive impacts on the environment now? Um, and, and how did you come away to that that line of thinking? Yeah. So when I first moved here after I married Bill Nyman, I, you know, we live on a ranch in California, north of San Francisco. And I initially thought, you know, I was still a vegetarian at the time. I was still an environmental lawyer at the time. I thought, well, I, you know, I can live here. It's okay. (laughs) I really supported what Bill was doing. I always did because I felt I had seen enough and learned enough by that point to realize that there were these very different ways of raising animals and that it had a very different uh, um, set of implications for the animals and for the people working there and for the the natural world. So I supported what he was doing, but I didn't imagine myself ever becoming part of it. But once I was actually living here and I began helping out on the ranch just as a matter of, you know, being a helpful, you know, spouse, um, I started to realize that I actually really enjoyed the work and the, you know, being in the proximity of the animals, being outdoors, um, really paying attention for the first time in my life to everything that was happening with, you know, temperature and rainfall and wind and, you know, all the different things that affect how you manage land and animals. And so it was just a whole different life. And I moved from New York City. So it was a dramatically different way. I often think about the fact that when I lived in New York, if it was, if there was a forecast for rain, that just meant that I might want to bring an umbrella along, you know? (laughs) And now all of a sudden um, rain was all important, right? And when it was going to come and how much and um, how how fast it was going to be raining. All those things, they all really mattered to everything we were doing and how our whole day would be planned, how our ranch is be, you know, being managed. So it, it was just this very different um, lifestyle that, um, that I really enjoyed and I really appreciated what we were doing here. So I actually began to get directly involved in the ranch. And a few months, I'd say within about six months of moving here, um, I became basically a full-time ranch hand and um, 
we had a great ranch manager at that time by the name of Annie Van Peer, a woman that taught me a huge amount over a couple of years um, about animals and the land and grazing and everything else. And after I'd been here for several years, I had really gotten involved in the ranch and I became more and more concerned about the fact that there was this very strong negative narrative everywhere, but especially in the environmental community about livestock in general and beef in particular. And that was troubling to me because what I was seeing on our own ranch, as well as many other farms and ranches that I had now visited, was just literally kind of diametrically opposed to what I was hearing so frequently. So I felt it was almost like my obligation as someone who had these different kinds of background, you know, as an environmentalist, as an environmental lawyer, you know, as someone who cared passionately about animals, to make the case um, that that the mainstream narrative was very, very off track. And then I, you know, I was going to try to help reset what was being discussed. So that's been the whole goal of my book. And I wrote the original version, uh, I guess it's been nine years ago now. And a few years ago, I was asked, I guess two and a half years ago or so, I was asked by the publisher if I could um, update the, the version because the topic of beef has been so important and more so even since I wrote the first book. Yeah. And um, I jumped at the chance to do it because I felt the same way. You know, there was so much to say and I wanted, and I had a lot more to add. So I told them I could do it in a few months. And then I started going through the book line by line and realizing there was a lot more I wanted to say. So I took me about a year to rewrite it and I added a great deal more research and updated everything, the science on the soil side and the environmental side and also on the health side. So um, I came out with this new version, the ecological and nutritional case for meat um, last year. That's great. And how how would you approach um, questioning someone's beliefs about vegetarianism or about the environmental impact of beef respectfully without overwhelming them with information. If, you know, someone is at a dinner party or a relative <laughs> of yours is like, you know, I'm, I'm a vegetarian because I'm trying to save the environment. Yeah. What would you say to them? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Optimal Carnivore and their new Brain Nourish. Brain Nourish is the ultimate whole food nootropic supplement to build a better brain. They've combined grass-fed beef brain and lion's mane powder in a groundbreaking formula. These two ancestral superfoods have been used for centuries as nootropic to improve brain function and overall mental well-being. Now available for the first time together in convenient capsules. You can get 10% off your order by going to the link in the podcast notes or in my Instagram bio and using the code carnivore10, all one word, at checkout. Each serving has 1,500 milligrams of organic lion's mane mushroom extract and 1,500 milligrams of beef brain. They only use 100% real mushrooms, organic fruit bodies, which are rigorously tested and for active compounds. The beef brain is sourced from the highest quality regenerative farms in New Zealand. Check out the link in my bio or in the show notes to get yours today. It happens quite often. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is I'm I'm I, and I do this also on social media. I'm really religious about this. I do not um, attack 
Okay. Attacking is not only is it not good for yourself to be doing that because it's just going to raise your blood pressure and, and it's probably not going to get you anywhere in terms of convincing yeah. the other person, yes. but it just, it just doesn't create, what it does is it the person puts up a wall and what I try to do is engage them instead. So I try to do a very different approach. For example, for me, I can, I often say, oh yes, I was also a vegetarian for a long time. And I understand a lot of the reasons why people you know, choose vegetarianism, but I'm, I'm no longer a vegetarian. And so that just kind of opens the door. People will say, oh, really? Why, why did you stop being a vegetarian? <laughs> and then I will, I will tell them um, some of my reasons. And, um, and so I try, you know, that's, that works for me. You know, not everyone has been a vegetarian, so they can't necessarily use that approach. But I'll say something, uh, often we'll also say something like, well, I think the issue is a lot more complicated than we're often led to believe. So I'll say things like that. And I, I also always in every conversation and in every, you know, Facebook post that I do about this, I try to say, you know, I respect individual choices and whatever people choose for themselves. But, um, some of the reasons why I don't think, you know, that everyone needs to be vegetarian are this, this, and this, or whatever. So I try to make it um, more a dialogue and where you're opening the conversation instead of attacking, which just shuts things down. And also it gets really heated really fast, especially with meat. It's really interesting. You know, I was just, I've, I've experienced this for so many years because I've been in this, you know, working and living in this space for such a long time. Um, you know, just sort of the discussions around meat. And I found that more so than probably any other food that we would discuss with someone, it's very emotionally charged. Whatever choice a person is making, it's like deeply connected with their life story, you know, maybe stuff from their parents, you know, all kinds of things, maybe religion even enters into it. I mean, there's just a lot of factors. And so, um, it's a it's an area where we need to all be respectful and listen and 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 just be calm <laughs> and respectful when we you know talk to people about it. I really believe in that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess some one of the most common arguments that people say to me is is not like I hear, and I think you did an excellent job in the book, by the way, going through um, some of the main myths around beef, around like water consumption and emissions and and, um, how it affects the soil. Um, Another one uh, that I hear all the time is like, isn't beef destroying the rainforest? Like like you said at the front, I I think this is like decades old at this point. Um, How do you respond to that when, when people bring that up? Yeah. So again, I often will start out by saying something like, yeah, I've also heard that as well. And, but I've done some more reading into it. And here are some of the other things I've learned. <laughs> For example, on that specific issue, and, and actually this was something that I, I dug deeper into in this second edition of Defending Beef, because um, I had addressed it a little bit in the first one, but then there was a lot more to say by the time I wrote the second one. And basically what I learned was that in those areas where deforestation was taking place, especially in Latin America and especially Brazil, for example, which is one of the main areas where this is being talked about, there is quite a lot of deforestation and that is of concern, I think really should be to everyone who cares about 
you know, the health of the planet. But what the real question is, is beef consumption, especially if you're talking to Americans and you're talking to them about the beef they're eating, is that actually driving this process? And what I found was that there is actually no really credible evidence that that's the case for a couple different reasons. One is in the U.S., the beef that is consumed here, the vast majority of it is actually raised right here in the U.S. And even that which is imported comes from our neighboring countries. So basically Canada and Mexico. And then there's a little bit that comes from Australia and a small amount from New Zealand as well. But that's pretty much it. Okay, there's a tiny amount coming from every other country in the world added up, including those places where the rainforests are being destroyed. So that's the one half of it. And, and that's and that's also true with soy. So soy is fed to cattle and feedlots. And some people will say, well, there's soy that's being grown down in the rainforest areas. And that's absolutely true. And actually, that's one of the problems with, you know, people who are eating vegetarian diets saying, oh, they have no connection to the rainforest deforestation. Well, they might actually have more connection if they're consuming a lot of soy. Um, but honestly, American soy that's being used in feedlots, again, just a tiny amount is imported. We we grow the vast majority of the soy that is used in feedlots right here in the United States. So again, there just really isn't that link that people believe that is there. But then on the other side of the picture, I like specifically looking at Brazil, I spoke directly with a couple of people in Brazil when I was researching my books. And I found that uh, the drivers for deforestation were quite different than we often hear from mainstream environmental groups. Because what I was learning is that there's quite a a sort of land grab happening in Brazil, especially in these rainforested areas, which are often controlled by indigenous people. And so there are wealthy people and corporations that are trying to gain control of that land and drive off the people that are inhabiting it. And they're doing this in part by putting cattle on those areas. And so they're sort of claiming ownership. And that's really what the cattle are being used for. It's not that you're trying to raise more beef, produce more beef, and so you're taking this land for that. You need the land. It's it's kind of almost the opposite. They want the land, so they're using the cattle to gain title to it. So it's very, very, again, like everything else, it's just a lot more complicated than people tend to believe. But the other part of it is for anyone who's really concerned about these issues, and I think we all should be, you can seek out well-raised beef and easily find beef that's totally raised in the United States. So there's no reason at all why your hamburger or steak or anything else needs to be in any way connected to deforestation. Yeah, I think that's, thank you. Um, That that was an excellent answer. Um, And another thing I wanted to get your take on And I I feel like a lot of people explain this very simply, um, and it's not that simple, is methane. Um, Why is it focused on so heavily, and what are the the facts around methane emissions from cattle? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because actually that, again, that's something that I got much more deeply into in the second edition, because it, it has become a big topic of conversation. And again, it's kind of like, rightly so, right? It's something we should really be concerned about. But I've actually been posting things for a couple of years, um, very specifically on methane on my Facebook and and, um, Twitter accounts, because 
What I have been learning is that the whole picture of the way methane has been presented to the world is quite distorted because there's actually, there is a connection with cattle, once again, but the science is really evolving on it very rapidly and quite new. And until very recently, there really wasn't much known about how much cattle were actually contributing to the global budget of methane. And one of the things that was has been shown in recent research is that quite a bit of the methane that comes from cattle is actually consumed by the soil dwelling organisms, the methanotrophs, those, those microscopic organisms that actually love or consume the methane, whatever, whatever source it comes from in the environment. And it's actually been found that you have more methane consuming organisms in a well-managed pasture system than you would in you know, a typical soil. So oh, interesting. one thing, one thing that's um, sh- sort of being shown is that a well-managed grazing system c- consumes a lot of the methane just by itself, but it's also, and this is interesting because this is kind of parallel to what's been found out about termite mounds. Termites are like little tiny cattle. They have, um, they just consume wood, which is basically a cellulosic material, very similar to grass. And they actually are able to eat wood because their guts are populated by a lot of microorganisms. And it's actually the microorganisms that consume, that break down the wood and make it possible for a termite to survive off of wood. And recent research in the last decade and a half or so have shown that termite mounds are very heavily populated by these methane consuming organisms. And so the net effect even though termite mounds were once believed to be a source of methane, it's now more accepted that they're probably not a source of methane because all the methane is actually being consumed by those soil dwelling organisms that are living in the termite mounds and they're eating the methane. So something kind of similar is happening with cattle and that's part of the picture. But it's also true that there's been this huge over-focus on whatever methane is coming from cattle because the fossil fuel industry, which is by far the greatest source of not just carbon, we know we all kind of know about that, but also the source of methane. A lot of different types of whether it's coal or natural gas or oil, all of these different parts of the fossil fuel industry have a very strong connection to methane emissions. And I've been posting a whole series of articles and new studies that have been coming out showing from around the world that the methane emissions from the fossil fuel industry have not been counted and not been even really studied or reported. And in fact, in some cases, places like Russia, for example, there are these huge methane plumes that are now being shown from satellite data. And Russia is not only not reporting it, but they're denying it, the existence of it. <laughs> so, so we've been, there's more and more evidence showing that the, the, the sort of allocation, you know, where is the methane coming from is massively off and that the cattle portion is probably very small. And when you think about what we, you know, what we need to do to sort of bring the planet back into balance, cattle are really, it's kind of misdirected focus to focus on them because not only do they probably not cause much of the methane of the world, but they have this huge potential to dramatically improve the health of an ecosystem and to improve the health of the soil. So even if they are emitting some methane, you know, and there's debate about how much or if at all, 
Um, but we do know that all around the world, where you have good grazing, you have healthier soils, healthier ecosystems, and you have more water being retained in those soil. And even surface waters that are reappearing that had totally disappeared in desertified areas where you have well-managed grazing. So cattle have a huge potential for ecological benefit, which is not true of cars and airplanes and all the other things you know, that are causing the burning of fossil fuels and, you know, whether it's cement production. I mean, there are lots of different types of, you know, industrial and transportation activities that humans are doing that are causing not just carbon dioxide emissions, but also methane emissions. So I think talking about cattle, it's another example of where, you know, the sort of mainstream conversation has kind of gotten captivated by certain, you know, interests. In this case, I would say the people who are really for a variety of reasons, trying to get us to stop eating meat. And so, um, you know, it, 20 years ago, if you would have said that to me, I might have thought that sounded a little bit like paranoid rantings of the meat industry. <laughs> but now having really looked at this for the last couple of decades, that is in fact what is happening. So there's been this way over expanded, you know, amount of attention being paid to beef and to cattle that really should be focusing on how do we reduce the methane emissions from the fossil fuel industry, especially because a lot of it is just leaks. I mean, literally methane leaks all around the world, which are doing nobody any good. They're not even generating any you know, energy for anybody and they're causing a lot of the world's methane. So that's where we need to be putting our focus and our attention and not worry so much about cattle and beef. It's really not the right target at all. What do you think has motivated so much of the focus on beef and like the almost scapegoating to beef um, for for emissions? Well, I think there's this long history, you know, that is kind of tied up with um, vegetarianism. I mean, there've been a, there've been quite a few people who've done some very interesting research into you know advocacy surrounding vegetarianism and now veganism. Um, and I, I talk about some of this in Defending Beef. There's, um, for example, I unearthed a talk that was being given by the author Jeremy Rifkin, who wrote the book Beyond Beef, which I read myself actually years back. And he's actually speaking to a group of law students at Harvard, and he's telling them, um, you know, the meat is murder message has been out there for a long time and hasn't done much to affect, you know, the, re you know, the meat consumption levels. I urge you to start focusing on climate change as a tool to get people to stop eating meat. I mean, this is literally right in his talk, okay? And I kind of knew this was happening, but when I saw it so explicitly, I was kind of shocked. So there is, you know, there's a very long history of advocacy for getting people to stop eating meat. And then there's, I think, just this sort of... Um, basic misinformation that goes back to books like Diet for a Small Planet that suggests that beef are these very, um, you know, resource intensive ways of producing food. And when you actually, honestly, I'm kind of astonished that that article, you know, that idea has resonance still, because if you understand how cattle are raised the world over, the vast majority of them, something like 80% and 80% of the grazing in the United States is, is in fact the figure here are on non-farmable land. So it's on land that where we cannot produce crops. So this idea that beef are taking food away is kind of just inherently absurd because they're actually the vast majority of cattle and grazing animals around the world, even if they're being fed grain in a feedlot at some point, 
most of their life is spent just simply consuming naturally occurring vegetation, vegetation that cannot be consumed by humans directly or even most other animals. And they're converting that through this, you know, complex digestive system that the ruminant animals have into meat and milk. And that is actually kind of the unique gift of the grazing animals to the world food system. They can, and, and actually, you know, I, I talk about this in defending beef as well. There's this long history of humans migrating over the globe with their grazing animals because grazing animals don't need to be fed anything. They don't need to be, you know, you can migrate with grazing animals as many traditional societies around the world did and still do in some cases because they're just going to eat the naturally occurring vegetation that's there. They just need some water and that's all they need. They don't need to be, you don't need to plow and plant and harvest and then feed them. It's okay. So this is why cattle are actually uniquely important and beneficial to the food system rather than being inherently negative as we're so often told. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that example of um, also talking about how even conventionally um, raised beef is, is fed um, grass and eats um, vegetation that's inedible to, to us for most of its life. Um, and, and there's been uh, a lot of advocacy or um, presentation lately um, by folks like Peter Ballerstead about um, the positive impacts of any type of beef, not just grass-fed, grass-finished, um, regenerative raising. Um, so I wanted to ask you, um, I'm not asking you to comment on Peter, just that, that side of it. Are, are grass-finishing and regenerative methods necessary, or can beef still be a net positive over mass monocropping, even if the methods aren't perfect? Um, like can't grain finishing be more sustainable in some ways as well than uh, grass finishing? Yeah. Well, first of all, I do appreciate Peter's work a lot and I've had a chance to spend time with him and really yeah. appreciate his, you know, social media presence as well as the work he's doing around the world. In fact, I think I was looking at a couple of his, couple of his posts just earlier today. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> but um, so I, and I agree with, you know, probably almost everything that he says. So um, yes, I think it's very important. One of the things I do in all of my work and in Defending Beef is to argue that beef is a very valuable food for humans. And basically all beef is good beef is how I view it. And then I think, you know, um, what it, someone said to, recently to me, all beef is good beef, but some is more equal than others. <laughs> so I think that, that's kind of how I would view it too. There are ways you can both from maybe the health qualities of it. And also sort of, if you want to think about the bigger picture of the environmental implications, which I think we all should be doing. Um, Seeking out food, you know, of all, you know, everything in your plate, really, not just beef, but trying to seek out food that has the most nutrition in it and also is farmed in the way that is the most beneficial for your community and for the planet as a whole. And I think when we do that, we move towards um, grass fed grazing animals. And, you know, like I realized a few years ago that um, I could, that we have, we live on the right on the Pacific ocean. We're very fortunate that way. And um, we have a number of friends who, who are fisher people. And so we started doing kind of small scale bartering with a number of these people to get wild caught uh, salmon. Oh, wow. And I actually hadn't, it's sort of funny, I had never eaten anything but that 
before because I hadn't eaten. I don't recall ever eating salmon as a child. And I, um, you know, was a vegetarian for 33 years. So I began eating um, meat a couple of years ago again. And I was eating just this wild caught salmon that I was bartering for from right off of our, you know, coast here. And I inadvertently bought a piece of farm raised salmon a few a couple of weeks ago because my son requested it. We were at the grocery store and it was his birthday weekend. And he said, Oh, can we get that? And I didn't look carefully at the label. And I said, Okay. Because <laughs> I really, I literally haven't ever bought one in the store before. And I brought it home and we ate it. And it was so disappointing. I, I, I didn't even, I didn't know how dramatic the difference was because I hadn't had a piece of farm raised salmon before. Wow. So um, I feel the same way about the grass fed beef. You know, I, um, and not just, you know, grass fed, but especially if it's from a really well-raised, diverse, you know, operation. Um, and especially in our case, that what we do is um, we raise our animals entirely on grass um, to full maturity. So a lot of what we believe in is um, having animals that are not too young and having animals that are killed only in season. So just like you would hunt elk or deer only at a certain time of year. We believe that beef should be slaughtered at a certain time of year. And that's when they're fully mature and fat from the grasses. You know, so you can produce, I think, higher quality meat um, and you can get better quality fish. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I, mean, I think there are gradients as far as nutrition and eating quality. But that doesn't mean that something that isn't the best isn't good. You know, so I always, you know, the, the way I like to think about it for myself and for other people too, is just get the best that you can find and afford and then just eat it, you know, prepare it in a way that you enjoy and eat it and don't worry about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think it's kind of a journey. Like I look at my own diet that's changed over the last 20 years and not just the addition of meat, but um, I've gotten more and more um, connected with the farmers. And as I was mentioning just a minute ago, the fisher people in our area. And so more and more of the food that I eat for myself and that I prepare for our family comes from people I know and from the immediate region. So I still, of course, I go to the grocery store and I buy things like pasta, you know, and salt and things like that. Um, and, you know, I probably go to the grocery store, you know, every 10 days and, you know, get those kinds of things. But I try to get as much as I possibly can in terms of fruit, vegetable, greens, meat, fish, and eggs for sure from right here in our community. And um, I have found that to be an enjoyable process. I, I know the people, I know the story behind the food, and it makes eating it more enjoyable. And the food is, generally speaking, much tastier, and it's it's more nutritious. So I just sort of urge people to, you know, begin that journey if they haven't done that already of trying to find things from your local community and from people you know and maybe even where you can go to the place where it was um you know raised uh the farm or the ranch and buy directly and then you can actually really understand your food and i think it's something that we've gotten used to thinking you can just go to a grocery store and fill up your cart and then bring it home and um that is convenient but we miss out so much when we do that. And it doesn't necessarily have to cost more. Um, it's more time consuming. I will grant you that. Um, but it's a, in my view, it's time well spent. Yeah, I, I really like that message. And I think it's all about doing the best you can. Um, where I have a problem sometimes is like, <laughs> 
many people aren't going to take the time to do that work. They either eat a lot of their meals out. Like I live in New York City. Uh, my my in-laws, for instance, they eat 100% of their meals out. They don't cook yeah. ever. <laughs> um, and, you know, other people just go to the grocery store, get what they can. And so, you know, when someone like that is coming from a plant-based narrative and someone says, oh, it's not meat that's wrong, it's factory farming that's wrong. It's factory farm beef that's the problem. They're just going to continue not eating any beef at all because they're going to be disillusioned and say, oh, well, I'm not going to go figure that out. I'm not going to go try to find a farmer. And so I I, I feel like sometimes if, if you jump too quickly to, to like vilifying conventional beef, um, that can create a false barrier for people too. Yeah. And the, the nutritional quality of meat is so high, you know, regardless of how it was raised. Yeah. And, you know, so I just kind of come back to this idea of doing the best you can, as you were saying, it's, it's, maybe it's going to cost more and maybe for some people, the cost is going to make it out of reach. Um, but for most people, we have the capacity to spend more on our food. And I think for everyone, when you start thinking about it more and seeking it out more, you know, putting more thought into where this is coming from, you know, I lived in New York city for five years as well. And I, um, I actually found it more, much more challenging to find really good groceries there, you know, than elsewhere, which is weird because it's kind of this giant food mecca. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's sort of ironic, but, uh, but I did, you know, I began going to the green markets and, you know, things like that. There were ways to get some of what I was eating from, you know, from farms directly. And it was, and I really enjoyed that process and that, um, you know, that process of looking for the food and buying it directly from the farmer was really rewarding. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we we use a meat CSA um, for for a lot of our meat, and we absolutely love it. So that's yeah. that's a great way to go about it too. Um, and and yeah, like farmers markets are awesome. They're they're all over the city too, which is yeah, great. Exactly. Um, can you talk about like also what the a lot of people argue like this focusing on this is too expensive. Can you talk about like what the true cost? Um, on a macro level, especially is of cheap food. Yeah. Well, I loved um, Michael Pollan's quote, you know, you pay your grocer now or you pay your doctor later. <laughs> I think he's really good at putting things into, you know, quick, pithy way of thinking about it. And so I think, you know, one of the things is it's an investment in our health and just, you know, when we spend more on food. Um, and I also believe, you know, if you look at the statistics, I talk about this in Defending Beef, of how much we've sent, spent as a percentage, as a population on food. Um, in 1950, people were spending about 31% of their income on food. That's quite Amazing. astonishing yeah. because now it's 9%. So there's just a whole different expectation about what food should cost and how much we should spend on it. So I think one of the things is readjusting our expectations about what to spend on food. And then, you know, from on a policy level, you know, the government has, has long subsidized food and subsidized farming, but it's really not focus on producing um, healthy food or nourishing food. It's really focused on just mass production and really is kind of subsidizing the industrial system that we currently have. So I think when we talk about affordability, we need to think about, you know, you know, sort of the government and, you know, state and local and national government subsidizing better farming methods and then just making better food more affordable and accessible for people. So like one of the things that's been happening is, 
there are programs that make it possible for people that are on food assistance to buy at farmers markets and things like that. So I think, you know, all of these things need to shift the way we view it, what we're subsidizing and what we ourselves are prioritizing in our own budgets. And, you know, to just kind of, I don't want to keep repeating this point, but this is so important. We shouldn't be vilifying people who are buying cheaper food. People should just be encouraged to try to do the best that they can. And I also think in terms of affordability, um, learning more about how to cook your food is a really important part of that. So, you know, my husband, Bill Nyman, is always saying that some of the best parts in terms of both nutrition and eating quality of any animal that you're going to eat are some of the cheapest cuts. And, you know, he's always talking about braising and the importance of that. That's kind of like long, slow cooking at low temperature. That's honestly something I didn't know how to do because I, you know, grew up in an omnivorous household, but, and my mother taught me a lot about cooking. So I knew a little bit about braising, but I didn't, you know, for most of my adult life, when I was really cooking a lot and learning a lot about cooking, I wasn't eating meat. So I hadn't really learned about this. And then in the last, you know, actually the last 13 years, because I've fed my kids, my oldest son is 13. I've always fed them meat. So I began to learn about how to cook meat. And when I started learning about braising, I was amazed. It's so easy. It's not difficult. It takes some planning and forethought because you have to, you know, do it um, over a longer period of time. But it's very simple. And I I was speaking to a group of farmers in Virginia a few months ago, and I asked how many people in the audience had eaten beef cheeks. And these were people who are raising beef cattle. And not one person in the audience raised their hands. I almost fainted. I was so shocked because I thought it would be a smattering. I knew it's not something that maybe everybody had tried, but it was none. And then a woman in the audience said to me, well, this is, you're talking about stuff we can't get. And, um, and I thought to myself, I, and, I, and I told her, well, you know, there are lots of ways to get beef cheeks, but someone came up to me right after the end of the, the question and answer period. And he said, look, I just Googled it. It's available at the local Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that when I answered her question. So I, I thought, oh, dude, missed opportunity. You know, but the point is, it just takes a little bit of research. You know, you can find beef cheeks and they're so easy to prepare. And if you're raising cattle yourself and you're taking them to slaughter, you can get the beef cheeks back from the slaughterhouse. You know, again, it just takes a little bit of additional thought, a little bit of additional work, um, and then learning how to prepare them. It's the easiest thing in the world. I've prepared them a whole bunch of times now in a lot of different ways, and it's one of my favorite um, cuts of meat from of any source. So um, we need to learn a little bit more about cooking, you know, and preparing food, and we need to prioritize that in our time budget. You know, people watch a lot of TV. People do a lot of other things for recreation. I, you know, I, I, for myself, I've taken time away from some of those other activities and put more in the kitchen. And that has been very rewarding, both in terms of the pleasure of cooking and the pleasure of eating and sharing good food with my family. Yeah. Likewise. Uh, I love, I love to cook. And, and I was going to ask actually, Nicolette, how, how you feed your family. Um, you, you kind of answered that, but I'd, I'd love to also hear about your transition um, from being a vegetarian. Like, how did you do that? What made you finally decide to try it? And and how did it affect you? Yeah, well, it was um, something I'd been thinking about for a long time because, you know, more and more I was becoming convinced that, you know, well-raised 
grazing animals and really all animals are valuable to the food system from an ecological standpoint. And at the same time, I was becoming more and more convinced that they're really nutritionally important. And as I just mentioned, I always wanted my kids to have the opportunity to eat meat because um, the nutritional requirements of humans when they're young and when they're old are much more, it's much more demanding, you know, what you need to develop properly and also to stay healthy as you get older. And so I want, and I grew up omnivorous and I did not want to deny my kids the opportunity, you know, both from an enjoyment standpoint, but most importantly, from a nutritional standpoint. So, um, you know, what I do in feeding our family, you know, we obviously use the meat from our own ranch. That's, um, I very rarely buy meat other than some prepared meats. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> in a store, you know, yeah, it's really yeah. nice because we have not, not only do we raise our own, we, we're not raising turkeys right now, but we were for seven years and we now have chickens. So we have, you know, different types of poultry that we eat. And then we have beef, of course. And we have um, a good friend in Iowa that has a beautiful organic um, outdoor pig farm. And we bought a whole truckload. <laughs> That's not something most people can do, but of his um, organic um, pork. So we were getting pork from there. His name's Jude Becker. Excellent pork. Um, But in any case, you know, we sort of cobble it together from a lot of different sources. We have our own garden. We have our own little orchard. And then we buy a lot from the local um, farms and, and farm stands around here. And then, of course, we shop at grocery stores. But I shop at multiple different grocery stores and get a few different things at each one. I kind of like have learned over the years what I get from where. Um, and then I just try to make, um, I, I basically cook um, three meals a day for our, our family. And I just try to keep it very simple for breakfast and lunch and then something, you know, that's more elaborate for dinner. And then there's just a lot of, um, you know, sort of nutrient dense foods, a lot of things like eggs, yogurt, cheese, meat, fish, and then vegetables, greens, fruits, and then of course, nuts and rice and things like that. And, um, and I try to minimize, and I've really moved toward this over the years for my own diet, especially, but for everyone, I've reduced the amount of pasta that we consume. I've reduced the amount of bread that we consume, you know, so, because those are things that carry calories, but not very much nourishment. And so those are things that we do eat, but um, it's much less, it's a smaller part of the plate. And I try to have a very diverse um, set of, you know, offerings, (laughs) you know, lots of, we have a lot of different kinds of fruits. We have a lot of different kinds of vegetables. We have a lot of greens that we consume. and. you know, just try to have food be simple, but, and simply prepared, but things that are delicious and um, enjoyable to eat, but have a lot of nourishment. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and how about for yourself? What into, went into um, moving oh, yeah. away from being a vegetarian? I'm sorry, I didn't answer No, that. no, it's fine. That was, that was great. Was that was say, really so I, I lost track of what you originally asked. I asked two questions at once. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so I, I had be, begun, begun to think that I should, you know, include um, meat in my diet, basically. And, and the real um, sort of, I'd say turning point for me was when I was reaching age 50, because I thought, I don't want to be, you know, someone who's beginning to take a whole battery of pills every day, which is what is the norm in the United States now, you know, and throughout the industrialized world. It's like, we're told 
that as you age, you're going to need all these pharmaceuticals to stay reasonably healthy, not even healthy, but just like stave off all these chronic illnesses. And I thought, you know, I really don't want to go down that pathway. And um, I've always done a lot of exercise. I was always very active throughout my whole life and I remain that way. Um, but I wanted to also with my diet be doing everything I could be doing. So I started, I, I made the decision that I was going to reintroduce meat and um, I had a uh, hamburger here at our home that was from our own beef that my husband prepared on the grill. And it was just really delicious. And I was just struck right away. Like, why have I not been eating this? <laughs> like, what was I thinking? You know, but um, I, you know, I really believe that as you get older, meat becomes more important because of the you know, the fact that your body is struggling to retain its muscle mass and especially for women struggling to retain its bone density. So, um, and there are a lot of other health issues as well that are benefit benefited by eating meat, but I wanted to, I'm just very determined. I want to do everything I can with my lifestyle choices to remain strong and healthy. And so I started, um, I guess it's actually almost three years ago now that I started eating meat again. And I didn't have any um, any problems at all in terms of you know digestive problems or, you know, some people say, oh, it was really hard to reintroduce meat or they would think it will be. It wasn't for me at all. I had no, no problems. So I went from basically not eating meat from 33 years to an omnivorous diet. I didn't begin eating meat like three times a day or something. I mean, you no, know, I kind of, I thought, well, my body might need time to adjust. So I reintroduced it slowly, but there were no ill side effects that I ever experienced. And it's just been something I've really enjoyed and more, more, much more than I expected. Um, and I think it's partly because I think our bodies know what we need when we give them real whole foods that they can recognize. And, um, it has tasted way better to me than I ever imagined. You know, having eaten meat as a child, I, you know, it was there, I ate it, it was fine, but I wasn't a lover of meat. Um, I would say now that I'm a lover of meat, <laughs> you know, like I really enjoy it and I um, seek it out and I crave it when I don't eat it. So I think my body has, is very grateful that I'm eating meat again. And I've just enjoyed, and interestingly, I can make the dishes that my mother made for us, you know, when I was growing up and I really appreciate being able to do that because now I'm eating the foods that I grew up on from, you know, her kitchen and, um, things like beef stew and things like that. I, and I always loved beef chili and I made vegetarian chili for 33 years and it was fine, you know, but the beef chili is even better. And so I'm just really enjoying the foods that I'm now eating again. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Nicolette. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'll, of course, have links to everything in the show notes, but where can people find you? Thank you, Scott. Um, I'm um, I'm on uh, quite active on social media. So Defending Beef has a Twitter handle. It's just, you know, hashtag Defending Beef. And then I also have a Facebook page for Defending Beef. So it's just Defending right. Beef. And, um, and then the publisher of my book is Chelsea Green. So that's a great place to you know, read more about me and look at the book or maybe order the book. And um, I've done a lot of writing as well. So anybody who Googles my name will come up with op-eds that I've done for the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, et cetera. And you can read, you know, more of my writings easily that way. I highly recommend all of them. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Great. Thank you, Scott. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out and share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered? 
or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at carnivorecast or go to carnivorecast.com. You can also email me at info at carnivorecast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.